Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Conflict is starting to emerge, which you can see now. They're going, well, hang on a sec. Uh, um, if, if you really are that religious, then why aren't you fasting? This doesn't make sense. Um, because if you were really pious and if you were a man of God that you say you are, then surely fasting would be something that you and your disciples would do. So then Jesus enters in verse 19 to um, his response and he compares himself to a bridegroom whose companions naturally rejoice when in, in his presence. You know, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I mean, that's, this is a simple analogy. Anyone been to a wedding? Yep. Did anyone not eat at the wedding? <laughs> no. Why would you? <laughs> Especially when people lavish, they, they, you know, they go all out. They just really, they put on a feast, they want to celebrate. We all know it would seem foolish to rock up to a wedding and then say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm fasting. I mean, we'd probably think... <laughs> Other things about those size of people, which I'm not going to voice from stage, but <laughs> you're not going to do it. So, so Jesus says, look, you know, so that's understood. But the question is, what is Jesus really saying when he says this? And would his audience, would his hearers actually pick up on it? Because in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah spoken of as a bridegroom. So we can know that, well, maybe this story is missed on them, but what is interesting is that Yahweh is at times talked about as both the husband and the bridegroom of Israel. You'll find it in Isaiah. You'll see it in Hosea and a couple of other places. So my question, would they have picked up on that? Now, Chances are probably not. Um, it's, a, it's a veiled messianic claim as far as we can understand. But the thing about the gospel is there's actually three different audiences you have to consider. There's the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Then there's the primary audience who Mark was writing to. And then there's us. So when Mark is writing to his audience... They have, just as we do, the, the gift of uh, hindsight. And I think what Mark is doing throughout his gospel, because he's arguing and presenting that question, who do you think Jesus is? He's showing all the way along that Jesus was revealing himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. And here he is just presenting another little morsel, another little uh, veiled claim and it's almost like it's teasing them in because I can imagine some of them walking away, well, I don't really understand what he's talking about. How, what has the bridegroom got to do with him being present? And Jesus is actually saying, I'm present and my disciples do not fast because they're celebrating because they recognise salvation is here. Yeah. Now, this feasting and fa- uh, wasn't going to carry on unhindered because, as you can see here, he follows up on the back of that by saying the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them 
and then they will fast in that day. Again, another veiled um, kind of insight into his fate, but people wouldn't have necessarily picked up that he was heading to the cross from that. But what is interesting in this is that he affirms fasting. So he's not, he's not dismissing fasting. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, Jesus teaches in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, when you, as in you and I, Christians, when believers follow as disciples of Jesus, when you fast, in other words, it becomes a daily practice, but not at this time. Not when Jesus is present with his disciples and they're seeing the kingdom of God break in. So I think that when he talks about that day in which they will fast, he's talking about that season or that time or that period where um, they will once again be fasting for his return. I think he's talking about now. How's your fasting going? <laughs> so that's verses 18 and 19. And then we notice that um, in, in verses and 20 and in verses 21, he now turns to these parables and there's two of them. The, the, the first one where he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new is from the old and the worst terror is made. And the second is about the new wine and the old wineskins. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. And as I mentioned before, it's not entirely clear what this has to do with fasting at all. I remember first reading this and thinking, that makes no sense. What's he doing? (laughs) Like he's just taken a tangent way off course and I really don't know where he's going. But, um, you know, these things, sometimes you just have to sit with them. And what is interesting is that Jesus has talked about the inappropriateness of fasting while the bridegroom is present. Here we have a couple of um, stories where actually the actions of putting a new cloth, unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or putting new wine into an old wineskin is also inappropriate. So there starts to be a bit of a connection going on here. And then... um, We're really starting to, when you think back about what Jesus was preaching about, about proclaiming the gospel of God and the time is fulfilled, you start to realise that he's talking about something far greater than just a law. He's not even talking on the level of the the competition of the best rabbi of the year. This is not about whether he's another rabbi come to create another sect. He's actually talking about something entirely transcendent and different that transcends the law. He's talking about a new covenant. And the fascinating thing about this is if you have eyes to see, you can see the line that Jesus is drawing in the sand about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. Two parables, the inappropriateness of the action, and the first is the new cloth. I just want to go into those a little further because while they may seem to be talking about the same thing, I think they have uh, subtle differences. So the new cloth, what is Jesus doing in this parable? He's saying, you cannot accommodate Jesus into your old life. You can't take Jesus and just adapt him to the life that you are currently living. It doesn't work. In fact, if you try, it's going to cause you worse damage than before. In other words, I can't just come along and think that Jesus is my Sunday um, activity and then the rest of the week that, well, there's no space for him. 
I think we get into trouble when we think that we can allow Jesus to have lordship of some parts of our life, but not all of it. I don't think Jesus even wants it. Because it actually causes you distress, tension. When you have the Lord come in and you're trying to hold on something and you're saying, hmm, you should probably let it go, and you hold on to it, no peace. Just this knot that just keeps building and you have to do all sorts of things to try and drown it out. It just does not work and in the end, it just you're not going to win. <laughs> so Jesus will not be accommodated and attached like some add-on or a, an extra app you can drop down on your phone. Whatever analogy you want to think about, it just will not work. The second one is about a wine and wineskin. And really what he's saying here is you cannot... You cannot receive the new covenant unless you're born again. In John, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless they are born of water and spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's discussion about what the water and the, uh, the spirit mean. Um, my take from what I've read and what I see in the Word and the way that the Word of God and the, is equated to the water and the way it sanctifies, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, not only do you need to be born again, but you need to be washed with the water of God's Word. You cannot receive the new kingdom unless you're born again. And so new wine, you'll notice that last statement, is for fresh wineskins. Now that can be pretty confronting. It also can leave you thinking, well, what does that mean? And I think for most of us here, it's not really a question of what does it mean to be born again. It's actually a question of how do I remain a new wineskin? Because I'm just going to assume that you're all born again, Christian, you love Jesus, that you have made him Lord of your life, that he's the one that you actually want to dictate your life. So I thought in the second half I would turn to the Colossians chapter 3 to try and unpack that and bring that rather confronting reality uh, into a better context to understand how you might think and act such that you might be able to receive continually and more fully the new covenant spirit of God. And just in case you think this is all about uh, dying to self and losing, which is often how we, you know, having to do away with things, he didn't just come so that you would stop sinning. He came to give you new life. Can you think about what he says about the fruit of the Spirit? He says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. This is stuff that people long for. We certainly want it in other people when they're treating us we want people to be loving, kind, gentle to us. Sometimes we're a little challenged about having to do it in, in, in the other way. But nevertheless, these are things people are crying out for in culture and society. There's so much hostility, so much division. And yet Jesus says, no, no, I've come to give you life and life in abundance. And part of that is this fruit of righteousness, which is peace, which is joy. Which is rest for your soul. So I'm turning to Colossians chapter 3. 
And before I read it out, just a couple of things about Colossians. I love the way Paul writes, particularly in Ephesians and in Colossians. They seem to have some similar characteristics. And if you read Ephesians and Colossians, you'll notice he does, there's a couple of components that are always there. There's the exalted nature of Christ Jesus, the magnificence of his person. And then, not unusually, right on the <laughs> juxtaposed against that is where we've all come from. In Ephesians chapter 1, about verse 20, or the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about we're all dead in our transgressions. Here in Colossians, he does the same thing in verse chapter 1. He says that you're all alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is on the back of this preeminence of Christ that is outlined about the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things created. These lofty, grand words that are trying to capture the magnificence of our Lord Jesus. So Paul puts that on one side and then he puts where we've come from another and then he talks about how we've been elevated and anchored in Christ and become this new creation. <coughs> what we've been rescued from. So he, what he's doing, he's actually addressing your identity. Who are you? Not who you were, but what did it mean when you became born again? Your identity changed. You went from someone alienated, orphaned, dead in sin, to someone who was raised up, set in the heavenly places, made peace with God, and become an, a child of God, which meant you belong. That God actually loves you, He is for you. That your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. That you, you can stop striving about trying to get your life right because he has given you the Holy Spirit, which is the grace to do that which you cannot do by yourself, which is live a right life. Nor can you live at peace. How many people in this world live with anxiety, stress, worry, concern? They can't live any other way because that's what the world is giving them. There is nothing you can put your feet on in this world that will give you a stable footing, particularly not in this day. What, do you want to give your money over to financial advisors and think that's going to take care of your future? Are you going to trust the politicians to actually be righteous? Do you think businessmen and women are noble in their intents when they're advertising to make you feel like you don't fit? What do you think is behind all these devices with the psychology and the training to get you addicted to doing this and then getting your money out and doing this? Now, this doesn't mean that we don't pray for them. In fact, it means we ought to pray more. It's very clear in Scripture we pray, but the, the world is not giving you anything that is for your benefit. Jesus comes and says, I will give you life. I will establish you. I will bring you into rest. I will give you peace. I will give you eternal assurance and blessedness and favour. So Paul establishes your identity. Before you even think about doing anything, <laughs> you need to be established in who you are. Because when you know who you are, that actually what comes out is natural. 
You'll only ever operate out of who you think you are. But when you're established in God and you know who you are, the fruit of the Spirit will naturally come forth. The peace will naturally come forth because you are established. You don't do to become. What you do is the fruit of who you've become. You can't work out to become a Christian. You are a Christian. You are like Christ. Therefore, be like him. Now I know some of you are going, well, there's a little bit of a gap between. It's just this, what I do about, you know, yes, yes, no. So scripture has this way of talking about things that they say is eschatological, which is a big word for saying end times, what's going to happen at the end when we're all received in glory. Do you know God looks at you like that? Complete, whole. So when he looks at you, he looks at you in your completeness in Christ. And then he says, this is who you are. No one becomes greater because they're condemned. Have you ever tried to encourage someone by telling them everything that's wrong with them? <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly didn't work for me. I just ended up being rebellious and hard-hearted and uh, depressed and everything else. <laughs> it doesn't work. It never works. God doesn't operate that way. That was the whole point of the cross. <coughs> Sin was dealt with so he could speak to you on your true nature's terms, your, your spirit, born-again spirit terms, that you could know that sin, its power and its grip on you is done and gone and that now he is the authority over your life and you can walk in that freely. Conviction is fine. If you're tripping up and you're convicted, that's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, hey, (laughs) this isn't helpful for you. This is not who you are. The only time that becomes a problem is when you harden your heart and go, yeah, I don't really want to address it. No, thanks. And I don't know why we do that, to be honest, because it's, it's like you're just going to make it harder for yourself. It's not helping you, and it's not helping anyone else around you. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to condemn. He comes to restore and redeem and heal and teach you in the ways of God. He's your ever-present help. So look how Colossians... We've had this exaltation of Christ. We've had how we've been drawn out from being alienated and been made co-heirs with Christ. And then chapter 3, I'm actually going to chop out a middle section intentionally so when I'm reading through, don't suddenly think, hey, he's missed some verses there. What's going on? Uh, I'm doing it deliberately. So I'm just going to read from chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a lot to take in. But can you imagine a community that was beloved, compassionate, kind, humble, meek? Can you imagine that? Hang on a sec. <laughs> That's supposed to be us. And you know, what I came, when I came to this church, what I loved about it is that the love in this house. There is genuine love in this house for each other. But there is an exhortation in Scripture to pursue this with intent, to put it on. Be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, bearing with one another. We could all use a little more bearing with one another, I'm sure. I need it, especially when I'm driving. There's this lofty, lofty and beautiful goal for the people of God and you know you wouldn't have to work hard to tell and testify of God and invite people in with a community that loved and exhibited this kind of Christ-like nature and so what do we do to get there we go back up to chapter 3 verse 1 he says if you've been raised with him seek the things on the seek the things that are above in other words these these things are not beneath us they're Above us, if that makes sense. These are the things of heaven. Put your mind on where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There's so much in that to unpack. Oh, we'll never be able to do it today. Otherwise, you'll never get home. <laughs> For you have died. Do you know those of you who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death? If that's not really sunk in, go read Romans 6. For you were buried with him. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too you were raised that you might walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful scripture to get in your heart. So here he is saying, put these things on. And now I'm getting to verse 5, which is right in the middle. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I think if I was to draw from the parables of Jesus, this is where I'd make it right now how I see they relate how the old way of life you just can't bring in to the new life he says put it to death sexual immorality impurity passion, evil desire covetousness which is like greed Idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must have put them away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. No obscene talk should come from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. 
The word of God is like a sword because it really does cut. But unlike any human, when Jesus comes and convicts the Holy Spirit, he never leaves you in that place where you've just had an incision and something's been exposed. He is always redemptive. He is always looking to reconcile. He is always looking to bring you into healing and wholeness. That's always his intent. Never forget that. That when his word is starting to penetrate, he is not doing it because he's angry. He's doing it out of love. Because the fruit of sin is death. You don't have to be a wizard to figure that out. It's just difficult when the sword starts penetrating your own heart. But have a look at what he says. He says, put your minds on the things that are in Christ in the heavenly places. What I was talking about earlier, remind yourself of who you are. Recognise that sin is not something that you should even identify. It's not part of you anymore. Yes, you have to deal with it. But it's not who you are and it's not part of who you're supposed to be. So he says, put your mind up, focus on these things. Part of what we get to do or what we can do is train our minds to focus on Christ. Romans 8, those who walk in the flesh have their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who walk in the Spirit have their minds on the things of the Spirit. Philippians talks about whatever is noble, good, praiseworthy, great. Put your mind onto these things. That's our exercise. That's our training. And your mind, believe me, it's like a muscle. If you haven't exercised this and you try and start bringing your mind into submission, you're going to find you need some grace. Well, in the midst of that, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in because that's what He's there for. All our activities in Christ now become nothing to do with actually making things happen. It is all about positioning ourselves in humility before God for the Holy Spirit to operate in our lives. And that's when you can cease from your striving. You can just sit back and say, Lord, accomplish your work. I set my mind on you. I put mind on your word. But I need you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love the fact that you are so concerned about me that you will come and excise every bit of sin out of my life that I might be free. However it got in there, however I became entangled, there is nothing that God can't get you out of. There's nothing that He can't rescue you from. This is what Psalm 139 is about. It talks about how, you know, I might go into the heavens and yes, you're there, but if I go into the depths of Sheol, yes, you're there also. God is everywhere. Where did he go when he died and crucified? He went into the depths of hell and he preached the gospel. He preached and, and this, see, he goes into hell and we think that's a you know, damnation. He goes to hell and he comes out with more than he went in with. He came out with souls of those who are longing for his coming and his redemption. You're alive. You get to have that now. You don't have to go down in that place. You don't have to go all the way there just to find out that He is Lord. You can have it now. Right now. There is nothing that's stopping it. If you don't think you're worthy, if you've got anything that's going in your head right now that says, I cannot receive, that's a lie. The Father of lies will try and stop you from receiving what Christ has purchased on the cross by His blood. It is precious and it is beautiful and it is whole and complete and it encompasses everything. 
that you need for life and wholeness. I think I'll just pray. How about you bow your heads with me? You know, as we were worshipping at the beginning, I just felt this, I was just welcoming the Holy Spirit into this place. Welcome, 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 welcome. If you want the Holy Spirit to meet you now, just welcome Him. Just say, thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. If you feel like, oh, I'm unworthy, just say, God, I feel unworthy. I confess but your cross and your resurrection says that you have actually made me worthy to receive. And so I surrender anything that would suggest that I can't come to you. It is by the blood of Jesus we can come into the very presence of God, the throne room of God, needing mercy and help in our time of need. Well, if you're needy, He's waiting. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful, so grateful that we have freedom of access to you through our Lord Jesus Christ and we come to you confessing our needs to you, our cries to be made whole, to be filled with your presence, that we might actually be vessels of light and love and mercy and kindness, a people redeemed, a people that testify of your name, unruffled by the things of this world, set on a rock, established firm and steadfast in your word. Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you that they've come. I thank you that there's that faith in them, however small they might think, to come to you. That's all the faith you need. That it's only a mustard seed in you. Come in and do the rest because that's all you need. Lord, minister to your people. Pour out your water where it is dry and barren. Make those rocks of pools of water. Refresh your people, Lord. And let them walk out in your presence and in the joy of the Lord in Jesus' name.